0: This episode of The Dig, like every episode of The Dig, is produced in partnership with Jacobin Magazine. Jacobin is an incredible publication, and you've probably seen a lot of what they've published online. But they also have a really beautiful print magazine. It comes out quarterly and has well over 100 pages packed with illustrations, infographics, and some of the best graphic design in the country. Dig listeners can join 50,000 Jacobin subscribers, developing socialist political thought and debate for just $15 a year. $15 gets you an entire year of Jacobin in print and access to the magazine's entire back catalog. If you've never subscribed to Jacobin before, you can access this deal by going to bit.ly digjacobin. All lowercase. That's bit.ly slash dig Jacobin. B I T dot L Y Dig Jacobin. All lowercase. Welcome to the Dig, a podcast from Jacobin magazine. My name is Daniel Denver and I'm broadcasting from Providence, Rhode Island. Oftentimes, The Dig is not the timeliest of podcasts. We strive to remain somewhat contrary to the 24-hour news cycle. But this moment is a powerful vortex that we've all been sucked into. What, in other words, can you think about right now other than right now? So I invited Naomi Klein and Nikhil Paul Singh on for a broad discussion About this conjuncture on the eve of the election with the pandemic resurgent after months of mass street protest against police violence as the world teeters on the edge, peering into the climate abyss. The basic question that I pose to them repeatedly in various ways throughout the interview is how should we be thinking about and acting upon it all as the left? After we finished the interview, Naomi lamented that we didn't discuss the unthinkable possibility of Trump winning or more likely him attempting to steal the election. And she had this to say.
1: I think people need to be reminded that in 2000, the Gore campaign told people not to protest, like told people to stay home and and be civil and let the process do its work. And the Republicans staged the Brooks Brothers riot, right? So I think one piece of advice that, that I would share is just Do not listen to Democrats when they tell you to stay home when an election is being stolen. Never, ever do that.
0: Before we get started, please take a quick moment to support this podcast at patreon.com slash the dig. The reason that no episodes of the dig are ever paywalled is because it is very important to us that everyone be able to listen to this podcast, regardless of their ability to pay. But we only can do that. Because those of you listeners who can afford to support us do so on Patreon. So please take a quick moment. That's P A T R E O N dot com slash The Dig. I also want to encourage you to join a Dig book club to discuss the books discussed on The Dig with fellow listeners and then to discuss them with the authors of the book on Zoom. If you're interested, visit TheDigRadio.com slash dig hyphen book hyphen club the next dig book club book is wendy brown's in the ruins of neoliberalism which i just interviewed wendy about last week so read the book meet wendy brown that's the dig slash dig hyphen book hyphen club okay here's naomi klein and Nikhil paul singh Nikhil Pal Singh is a professor of social and cultural analysis and history at NYU and faculty director of NYU's prison education program. His most recent book is Race and America's Long War. Naomi Klein is author of No Logo, The Shock Doctrine, This Changes Everything, No Is Not Enough, and most recently, On Fire. Senior correspondent for The Intercept, Puffin Writing Fellow at Tite Media Center, Klein is the inaugural Gloria Steinem endowed chair in Media, Culture, and Feminist Studies at Rutgers University. Naomi Klein and Nikhil Paul Singh, welcome back to the dig.
1: Thank you. It's great to be with you.
2: Great to be here. Thanks.
0: I want to start with a question about, I guess, like your theory of history. Do you believe that moments of heightening and intersecting crises like this one, that they make the direction of history more contingent, more open to a wider variety of futures, whether good or bad? In other words, like what sort of moment are we living in and how should we be thinking about it?
1: I I think we are in a intensely malleable moment. And I think as you say, Dan, that that's for worse, and potentially better. So it is it is obviously a moment of intersecting crises and system failures. And as we know, moments of crises have, in neoliberal history, been again and again seized by intensely regressive forces to push for an even worse version of the pre-crisis reality. But when people are seeing systems fail all around them, multiple systems fail, it also makes it harder to convince people in any way, shape, or form that they should expect more of the same. So, yeah, I think, I think we are in a terrifying but malleable moment. And it is a ripe moment for serious organizing and consolidation, I think, for the left, but it's also a moment where we could be pushed back backwards very, very quickly. So yeah, it's scary.
0: Nikhil.
2: Yeah, I think I, I agree that it's a malleable moment. And in some ways it's an open moment. And in my more optimistic moments myself, I think we've seen an upsurge of more militant kind of feminism. We've seen indigenous resurgence. We've seen, A renewal of Black politics around Black Lives Matter. We've seen uh, a renewal of a kind of radical economic, at least social democratic, if not socialist politics. So all of those have emerged in our moment in the last 10 years or so in a way that now beg for a fuller articulation and realization in, in institutions, in organizing, as Naomi said. But having said that, you know, I also think that what Naomi also pointed to, the kind of repetition of kind of the, the sort of the long crisis of neo, uh, that has been engendered by neoliberalism over 50 years, that has continually reinforced the sense that there is no alternative, right, has also left us at times, I think, falling very flat you know? And so when I say in my optimistic moments, I also have my pessimistic moments where I feel that that all we sometimes can do is is bear witness to the travesties and tragedies that unfold and sort of think about what we can salvage from it, you know? And I feel less confident in the sort of the renewal of a kind of uh, a kind of nostalgic vision of social democracy. And I feel less confident in the kind of abilities of the technocrats to solve our problems. You know, I think both of those avenues within our politics right now, the kind of technocratic imagination and the the renewed sort of social democratic impetus, both are wanting in many ways, which I think sometimes leaves us to fall back on the the moral witness, or the or the sort of sense of you know that all we can do is 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 revolt, but without really a sense of where that revolt is going to lead us. So, so I mean, it's a mixed picture for me, and and that's maybe the best way that I can put it. What do you two
0: think that that COVID has done to change American politics, especially as it enters this weird moment of hyper normalization where we're constantly surrounded by it, but it's no longer novel the way it was the first few months and all of our conversations were just pervaded by the sense of wow this is extremely scary and weird on the one hand it seems to have accelerated this psychosis on the right with with qAnon and then things getting even weirder with Trump surviving covid and making himself out to be some sort of superman but also telling people that you don't have to worry about it because there's a cure all while normalizing the math, mass death of more than 200,000 Americans but then Biden seems to be on track to win based on his minimal promise to be basically competent, which which understandably appeals to people, given what's happened. How have you seen the politics of the pandemic play out and take form since March? And where do you think they might go? And then also, what does it mean that by far the most important left response to the, the pandemic has been a movement against police violence?
2: I think that the pandemic is not normalized. So I'm going to take issue with the question. I think the pandemic is 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 roiling us. And, you know, it has this multiplier effect. So we start to know more and more people, either directly or indirectly, who have been uh, affected by it. And so, I think tragedy and mourning and loss is like coursing through the body politic in a way that's extremely profound. And I think we're, we're very, very saddened by this. Many people are anyway. And I think, of course, there are, there are aspects of, of denial and disavowal that are very central to the, the response on the right. Uh, but the right has also been confounded by the coronavirus, right? They, they can't manage it. And I know we're gonna talk about this more, but it's their own constituencies as well that are being ravaged by it, right? And we see that in the United States today if you look at the maps. So I think that the the fact that it is a virus and we know it's been, been disparate in its impacts as all of the things that ravages are, whether it's economic deprivation, wealth inequality, police violence, as you mentioned, or uh, public health challenges. They all rip through our body politic along the lines of existing inequalities and vulnerabilities. But at the same time, we also know that this can affect anyone, it can hit anyone. And despite the fact that Trump uh, seems to have come out of it more or less unscathed, many, many, many people have not. You know, And so I think that if anything, the, the hope the hope that I take from this moment is, is that some level of political realism has set in uh, that um, we will be able to build on uh, a lot of people are are very very anxious and paying attention to this election because of the failure of our government to respond to coronavirus and 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 if the election turns in the ways that we think it will it will be because of the, the Trump administration's failure to address this. And that is something that we can work with. So I guess that's the first part of my, my answer. And, and maybe I'll come back to the question of the, the protests uh, this summer after just pausing for a minute in case Naomi wants to say something.
1: Sure. Yeah, it's such a huge question. that I think we both could probably talk for a really long time about it. Yeah. So what has COVID done to the body politic? I don't think there is one body politic, right? So I think it's doing a lot d- different things in different areas. I think it has in part because I guess the last massive disaster that I reported from was Puerto Rico after Hurricane Maria. I, I've I've thought of a lot of the sort of framings I heard in Puerto Rico, in the context of COVID, so in Puerto Rico, a lot of people talked about Hurricane Maria as an unveiling, or as a teacher, that um, exposing pre-existing crises, just pulling back the veil, and teaching these very, very harsh lessons about what it about the extreme vulnerabilities of a of a colonial economy. In the case of Puerto Rico, of what it means to have You know, so much of the energy come from off-island, so much of the food, um, all these built-in dependencies and all this brittleness, right, that then gets just knocked out. And so I think that, you know, and this is not just in the United States, right? I mean, if you think about the way the Italian healthcare system cut to the bone after decades of economic austerity, faced the crisis it unveiled what it the the brutalities of this the logic of 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 efficiency that said you know it's a failure if you have more than 3 empty beds in your hospital right and the same logic within long term care facilities in 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 so many countries not just the united states so i think it has been this unveiling of brokenness so which means that yeah, okay, Biden may be a centrist and be promising status quo, but that just doesn't work when you come to office in the midst of so much brokenness and in the midst of this unfa- unveiling. You have to, at the very least, begin to repair the brokenness. And, and and then the other piece of it, and this I think relates to the question maybe about the demonstrations Eddie Glaude Jr. Um, when he was t- talking about his book about Baldwin, uh, Begin Again, he he talked about he used the phrase uh, solidarity and vulnerability in the context of COVID. That I think when the w- when the pandemic hit, everybody was forced to think about the web of interrelationships that is life, right? That, that, you know, we're told that this virus could travel on any surface. And, and, and at, at, in the early days we had no, you know, we thought we had to wipe absolutely everything down, right? We didn't know that it was mostly airborne. So we were thinking, okay, who touched everything that I touched? And did that, per- is that, was that person able to call in sick? Does that person have access to healthcare? And so I think there's a way in which COVID made visible, the brutalities of, of, uh, 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 of our system and also interdependencies that are invisibilized by capitalism deliberately. And there's a kind of a softness in that or a softening in that or as as Eddie said, uh, maybe a solidarity in, in, in mutual vulnerability that helps explain the, the multiracial nature of the black led uprisings. Because of course, what's different in this case is, is not that, that black people are rising up against police murders, it's that more not black people are showing up. And, and, and so maybe part of the answer to why that was happening had to do with more people being in touch with their own vulnerability. I also think that there's something in slowness, that the, that the, that the pandemic forced a slowing down of life you know, it, we live in a in, in an economy that sees slowness as a crisis, and and pushes us to all function at an incredibly accelerated rate that makes solidarity difficult, not impossible, but difficult. And so, I was in New Jersey when the George Floyd protests happened in a you know just outside of New Brunswick, a fairly suburban part of New Jersey, and. You know, I saw people coming out for those protests and they were leaving their houses for the first time in 2 months, right? And there was something er- I I felt about the fact that that life had slowed down that allowed people to feel, you know, and and Akil talked about the sort of the the grief that is coursing through communities. We don't live in a culture that allows communal spaces for grieving and plus funerals have been banned and so we don't haven't had spaces where we've been able to ritualize and express grief, right? And so I think political activism has created spaces for people to grieve together, which is incredibly important, I think. It's breaking people's hearts open. And I think that that's important. On the other hand, on the right, I think there's the opposite. I think there's a kind of a hardening of hearts happening, which long predates COVID. And Dan, you and I have talked about kind of climate barbarism as well, uh, the way in which people's sort of hearts are shut down in the context of crises that kind that if you're not going to act in the face of the climate crisis, you need stories that rationalize allowing entire nations to disappear beneath the waves or or to be um, made uninhabitable by drought. You need stories that basically say, well, those people deserved it. And I think that we're seeing, we're seeing that on the right in the context of disease, where you have Trump playing the role of the kind of ubermensch, right, who survived COVID. And he's out there saying, I, you know, I, you know I'm strong enough. I've got the genes, you know, and, and by extension, he's sort of flattering his base. Like, it's only the weak who die from this thing. That's the unspoken part. But that has a very, very deep history in settler colonialism, which um, where, you know, your, your European settlers in, in, in large parts of the country saw diseases like smallpox clearing the land, you know, and using f- phrases like that, tilling the land, clearing the land of indigenous people because it was God's will. So I think that there's a, there's a white supremacist ideological framing of the, of the pandemic that is basically saying, well, the people who this kills are weaker, so we don't have to worry about them, and we will be strong and survive it. Obviously, it's not true, but it's a story that rationalizes mass death, and, and stories that rationalize mass death are very dangerous.
0: And and this exposure of interdependence and mutual vulnerability that, that COVID brings about is what requires the right in order to Relegitimate its own ideology in politics to either normalize the mass, mass death or to deny that it's actually happening, that COVID is even real, or, or, or that COVID is perhaps part of some vaccine scientist or, or Bill Gates conspiracy. Unless they're going to just drop their ideology, which by and large they're not going to do, the ever crazier and, and more cruel justifications are, are, are required.
1: Right, but I just think it's important to know that this there's a deep history of, right. of, of, of this. You know, in, in 1634, John Win- Winthrop, governor of 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 the Massachusetts Bay Colony, talked about how smallpox meant that God hath thereby cleared our title to this place. So it it so so there's a divine narrative around who is surviving and who is not surviving. And I don't think we have reckoned enough with how many people in the Trump administration believe that all of these disasters that we're talking about are signs of end times and that they are going to be among the saved who are going to um, be okay while everybody else is going to get what they deserve. There's a lot of powerful narratives intersecting right now.
0: Yeah, yeah and it's no coincidence that, that evangelicals White evangelicals are also the base for QAnon. That it's part of their theology increasingly. Uh, Nikhil,
2: yeah, I would I would agree that the the far right draws on these elements of kind of Christian eschatology and and white supremacy and the settler imagination and 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 we can track a lot of the this through our history in many ways. But I I, I would also want to underscore what what I said before, which is that. I do think the pandemic and what Naomi so beautifully described as the kind of interdependency of vulnerability has confounded them as well you know that they they're they're left with trying to blame China so Ch- Trump's always it's the China virus it's the China virus it's the China virus right or to say as he said I think today or yesterday you know coronavirus is over you know we've've we've, we've beaten it um, even even as the the cases are now at the highest that they've been since since last spring in the country. So there's a really uh, a profound kind of kind of failure to um, to reckon with what is what is actually happening on the ground. And we don't entirely know um, how that is playing out through, What has been either Trump's base um, or what we think of as the base of the Republican Party or those um, those intermediary voters who may maybe were swayed by Trump and some of the populist appeal that Trump had. I think that's one of the reasons why we're talking today. This election is a kind of diagnostic, which is going to help us see something, as it always does, kind of backward looking. Uh, hopefully it will help us see something better about the country than what two thousand and sixteen showed us but i'm I'm not convinced that this is um is 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 a winning formula for the right you know they still they still have to govern um the country you know unless they're going to really um Kind of continue the sort of acceleration to something that you know is 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 much more horrific than than, than we're seeing now, um, and you know I think that's that's in suspension right now. I think we're all sort of wondering, like, is fascism just on hold? Um, are we about to lose something much bigger than that, that we imagined we couldn't lose in terms of kind of basic democratic procedure? These these are obviously real questions before us, but I but I think that they're in trouble. I think that the right is actually in trouble. Um, and I think the coronavirus has exposed the troubles they have. You know, it's not just the 225,000 deaths that are now attributed to coronavirus. It's the it's the something like 350,000 excess deaths during this period. Uh, we still have an opioid crisis. I think I was reading recently that there was something like 70,000 deaths attributed to the opioid crisis since last March.
0: We're hitting record overdose deaths in Rhode Island which has always been a bad state
2: for it. These these are very these are very interlocking crises of kind of po- the politi- our political economy, our public health infrastructure, and our kind of um, our kind of informational ecosystem. And Trump's exploited all of them to to, to short term gains, you know, and that's kind of his mo as a businessman. It's sort of pump and dump, right? It's like he's he's gonna he's gonna strip away what he can for his own purposes, um, and leave a, a wreckage in his wake, like he did in Atlantic City. And I think this is this is now happened to the country, and I it, it's hard to. It's hard to believe that this is something that, that we invited. I mean, we in the sort of broadest collective we, we invited upon ourselves. It just shows what, what a terrible shape this country is, that someone like this could be at the helm of it uh, at this moment. But I'm, I mean, this really gets us into the question of how we assess the balance of forces in this moment. Because I, I agree entirely with, with Naomi's analysis of the, of the ideology of the right uh, on the far right, but I think that they are going to have to make some adjustments here too, if they want to be able to govern in the future. And and hopefully this election is going to show that. Um, at least that's my hope.
0: And Nikhil, what does it mean that that the most power in terms of the left's diagnosis of the trouble that this country is in? What does it mean that the most powerful left response to the pandemic has been this movement against police violence, given that police violence in particular and the the entire carceral state, in general, is so old, and this pandemic is so new. Is 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 there a sense in which the the movement, especially all of the non Black people, the white people in particular, are taking the streets, is talking about one thing as a way to talk also about a bunch of other things that are that they're struggling to fully articulate about life and exposure to death in twenty twenty America.
2: Yeah. Again, I think. I learned a lot listening to Naomi's answer to the question. I think we are trying to re- reconstruct um, our sense of collective politics and what the collective we is in this moment. Um, what what are the boundaries of, of of our of our belonging? And these 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 were these remarkably uh, multi generational, interracial, cross class kind of gatherings. And I, and I do think they, they emerged in a moment that was about, you know, that was telescoped by, by this horrific episode of police violence in Minneapolis that has, that we've become attuned to from a decade of such, uh, such episodes and the kind of protests that have emerged in response to it. So there's a, there's a kind of collective political intelligence around this issue that's been developing. So we're, we're starting to get some traction there. And understanding the police as the kind of front line of a broadly unaccountable and coercive authority that we face day in and day out at the workplace, in relationship to our, our political leaders, um, in relationship to the ways that um, our needs are not addressed by the basic systems that we rely upon to live. You know, so I think I don't want to say that the police are just a metaphor they're they're integral to this entire system but i do think that the the uprisings took on the scope and and kind of um fullness that they did in the period that we saw this summer in part because they were being connected to these these broader uh issues around how we live in a, in a bad political state. And, and, you know, I think it was John Dewey who famously kind of described the sort of the bad political state as the state that is non-responsive to the demos, that is kind of actively hostile to the needs and the will of the demos. You know, and I think we, we really have begun to see the police as the face of that. And we've begun to understand that the most vulnerable members of our polity that have historically suffered from that kind of neglect and abuse and violence and also struggled against it as a kind of leading edge of our, our kind of democratic expansion, namely Black freedom struggles over the last century or more, you know, are a kind of guide to us. They're a guide to take us forward. And, you know, and I, I think, um, I mean, I look to something like William Barber's you know, Moral Mondays, which started as Moral Mondays, and now the Poor People's Campaign, as a kind of great example of this, um, and I I wish it would get more more traction and more attention because I think Barber has been talking a long time about the need for a third reconstruction. You know, the need to kind of think about what the next what is the next iteration of our of our kind of democratic project, um, and I think. We, we are, we're 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 fitfully and in some ways not that successfully groping towards this, but that's how I read what emerged in the in the summer, uh, and I think Naomi's also right that it emerged in a moment where we were all trying to get outside and get some breath, you know, get some air, and there's something about the conditions both of the pandemic um, and the confinement we experienced, but also the the stimulus which was an extraordinary, although short-lived, moment in which the government basically said, okay, you know, here, we're going to underwrite what you need to live. And I think that was also a moment of, an, of, of a kind of extraordinary uh, freedom, uh, again, short-lived. And, and, and don't think that the GOP did not learn a lesson from that moment. You know, it learned the lesson that we are now seeing, which is that they are not going to give another dime to 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 people who are who they see as unproductive, uh, unworthy, um, and um, and unfit. You know, to go back to something Naomi was saying earlier, um, and be damned, right? Uh, Let us be damned, and 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 I think that that's really what we're going to be facing now in the in the next several months as. People face a kind of, um, you know, their own personal fiscal cliff, whether it's trying to pay their rent or trying to put food on their table, you know, or trying to pay some um, some medical bills or whatever it might be. It's a very, very severe crisis now for for households all over the country, and uh, you know that's that's obviously what what's at stake in, in part in this election. Naomi,
1: I mean, I think just one thing that that we should probably. Add to this list of of things that that were unveiled in this moment, I think was the I think I think it was radicalizing and empowering for the working class to be rebranded essential workers. Um, it was just sort of you know language that was just suddenly being used. These are essential workers. They you know they're going to continue to work in grocery stores and Amazon warehouses and hospitals. But just using that phrase essential workers. Um, for a people whose work had been so systematically degraded. I mean, working class people know they make the world run. But I think by having the whole you know, infrastructure of power and every advertisement on television just talk about how you're keeping us fed, you're keeping the lights on, you're cleaning the streets, you're keeping us alive, um, and having that class of workers be overwhelmingly black and brown, overwhelmingly more vulnerable to COVID was obviously radicalizing. And so... I think that's a, that's a piece of it that we need to that that we need to 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 understand about why this moment led to the uprisings that it led to, and not so many other moments when it might have. Um, but I also think, you know, listening to to Nikhil, I am just so struck by the the many many lost opportunities on the part of the Democratic Party leadership. And of course, we could fall down this rabbit hole forever, <laughs> right? But I think the. Like just coming back to Trump and his and his Covid experience, right? It was not because of his good genes. It was overwhelmingly because of his good health care. And
0: you mean it was because of regeneron I mean, <laughs> it's a, it's a cure. I mean some people are calling it a cure
1: <laughs> exactly. Um, but you know, we, like we know from very good investigative reporting by The New York Times that, The major determinant of who lived and who died in New York City from COVID had to do with what hospital you went to and what the nurse to patient ratio was in that hospital. Right. So the reality of apartheid in the United States—this should have been an election narrative, and it hasn't been. And the other piece of it, also just building on what Nikhil said, you know, I'm I'm struck as somebody who you know I'm. I'm a dual Canadian US citizen and 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 you know I'm pretty in touch with the way Canada the different ways that Canada has navigated COVID and I, I don't want to over idealize it but it's pretty striking but also European countries and 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 different Asian countries where you know 80% of people's salaries c- continue to be paid and and people have been in so many countries been paid to stay home and so what that reveals and what that could reveal also in terms of empowering people and opening up the imagination of what a different kind of social state could provide i mean there's good reason why republicans wanted to take that off the table not just because they don't care about people, it's also because they understand that if people really grasp what a government could do if it chose to do and what other governments are still choosing to do in other countries that are managing this pandemic so much so much better and saving so many more lives, you know, it would completely change the game. And the parochialness of the discussion in the United States is really quite um, distressing to me because I think this is a moment where... I think Americans even though yes Americans don't believe they can learn anything from other countries and the American exceptionalism narrative is so powerful I do think that it would be striking to to hear more about countries where where public health officials are the the primary voice that the public hears from not politicians. You know my family lives in British Columbia and the the third party the NDP just got majority moved from a minority to a majority a few days ago. And a big part of that is because the premier of British Columbia didn't act like Cuomo, or, you know, any of the other grandstanders and turn COVID into an endless press conference for themselves, but handed it over to a doctor, a woman who gave very level instructions and And people trusted her across the political spectrum. And people thought, "No, this is a pretty good way to navigate a disaster. It's kept numbers down. It's kept us safe. Let's continue doing that. So yeah, just there's just a few things to share there.
0: Two things that this year's experience seem to have changed in terms of the government response to coronavirus is that, one, I think that a Biden administration will be less spooked, quite a bit less spooked by deficit spending. Than the Obama administration was, and then also the experience of those UBI checks, those one-time checks that went out that really did work to keep a lot of people from falling in into poverty. Do you see the government response as, as insufficient as it's been, as permanently changing the politics around some of these previously taboo issues?
2: You know, I think this is one of the—this is the more pessimistic side of the reading of what happened this summer, which is that— that i think we've we've tried to to pull out what what was really hopeful about it and the 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 kind of the kind of hopefulness and humanity that 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 course through it and that motivated it but ultimately so, as so often the case in the us the the left becomes a kind of adjunct to the democratic party and its own efforts to essentially pursue you know, a, a cautious centrist role in, and and I think th- they they're not shaken out of that yet. Clearly, uh, we're not shaken out of that yet. Um, I'm not sure what the Biden administration is going to do. I think you're right that they're going to be less spooked by deficit spending than than Obama was, but it's not clear to me that they're they're not going to be um, in the same kind of. Um, we can we can pursue cross the aisle consensus and come to kind of new new sorts of uh, governing agreements that that really do involve you know grand bargains about uh, about deficits about Medicare and Medicaid about Social Security that they're still very much in a in a neoliberal mode they're they're going to be. Uh, beholden i think we'll we'll see this more clearly when we see what kind of cabinet is is put in place they're going to still be beholden to the same kind of economic thinking um that has governed the democratic party since the since the 1990s so i'm not i'm not super optimistic that it's going to be be entirely as you say
0: yeah i mean we'll see if there's a something like a, a Kasich appointment to the the cabinet which would be sending quite a message and also if they're unwilling to deal with the filibuster there's there's only so much in terms of stimulus and climate green stimulus that can be done with budget
2: reconciliation that's right and also the and and, and the stock market you know because i think i think the market you know I, I i we know that the, the that there's a, a huge disconnect between the stock market and what's called the real economy in the sense that that the, there's a very small percentage of ownership an ownership class in this country that is benefiting from the stock market but it's an index of a kind of uh, a kind of economic state that uh, lots of people pay attention to and i think if biden follows through on the promise to raise corporate taxes uh, um, back up to 28% um, and to kind of use use taxes to pay for more redistributive and, and, and infrastructure measures, it, it, there's going to be a, a battle over how that impacts the markets and then what is going to be exacted in return for that. You know, and I, and I think that's going to be the tendency. It's going to be, be to say, well, OK, we'll, we'll do this, but we're also going to give you this. Um, Because we want to keep our, you know, who we who we regard as our kind of main constituency within the the financial community, essentially, and among the wealthy uh, on board. And I I think that's what we've always seen. And I think that's still where we are. And that's also what got us into the the problems that we're in. So, well, in in
0: the face of congressional gridlock, we've seen the Fed running most of the economic response. And that Fed liquidity has just been pumping up stocks, leading to this just surreal situation where, where the star- stock market and the real economy just don't have much to do with each other.
1: Yeah, and that's something else. It's, it's another an, another democratic failure that we can point to just in terms of telling, you know, how we tell this story about what has been revealed. And one of the things that has been revealed is, yeah, we we can create currency when we need it. And the tremendous amount of whatever you want to call that creation of of backstopping the entire economy, it's kind of disappeared from the public discourse, because it was a bipartisan affair. Um, and most people within the Democratic Party don't want to don't want to talk about what they did. So it's going to be up to social movements to keep that memory alive, right? I don't think left to their own devices. We can count on the Biden administration to be less spooked. Um, I don't think we can count on them for anything. I think we need to really understand that they loathe the left, loathe the left. They are not our friends. But neither do I agree with some of my fellow travelers in the Bernie camp um, who are claiming that we can't push them. You know, this is something that I've seen, uh, you know, in recent weeks that it's fantasy to claim that we'll be able to push Biden from the left. Why on earth would we ever claim as people who are part of, of, of the left, that social movements can't make history. And, you know, even if we just confine it to the Obama years, what we see is that the first term, the first term of Obama, and particularly the first par- the first couple years of the first term, which I always think of as the give the guy a chance, you know, period, um, you know, maybe he's playing a long game period, you know, he's under enough pressure, let's just, you know, give him some space, maybe, you know, maybe he's being really strategic by putting Larry Summers and Tim Geithner in charge, but he's really about to introduce like the biggest, you know, Green New Deal of our dreams. What we got was nothing during that period, or next to nothing. I mean, yes, there was a huge stimulus, but a lot of it went to you know, the highways, and and um, and it was much too small given the scale of the crisis.
0: You're forgetting about Solyndra.
1: <laughs> <laughs> when we when we entered the second term, and it was Black Lives Matter, it was the Dreamers, it was the the Keystone XL protests and Standing Rock. That's when things we started to win things not enough but it's absolutely not the case that 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 a Biden administration couldn't be pushed any more than it then it wasn't the case that Obama couldn't be pushed he could be pushed it's just that he wasn't pushed nearly enough so i think that we have to you know i i am telling myself because we have to find silver linings that there's something good about the fact that nobody is a fanatical Joe Biden fan, or that they're, that's they're few and far between. that the the quality, the belovedness of Obama, the fact that he was and is still is such a skilled and suave communicator um, that people still comfort themselves with pictures of Obama and kids and things like that. All of that is really corrosive for for the for a, a democracy, and that it's good not to to have a crush on the a president of the most powerful country on earth, and that it makes room for much more strategic politics. And from what I'm seeing and from what I'm hearing, from social movements that are being very strategic in this election and are doing major get out the vote pushes, even though Biden was their, you know, seventh or eighth choice in the primaries. I mean, they plan to be mobilized the day after um, this election, if there is a day after, you know, if, we don't know what it's going to look like. And I know we'll talk about that a little bit. But, you know, I think about the moment, the, the 2018 post primaries moment, right, where Sunrise occupied Nancy Pelosi's office before the new Congress had been sworn in, right? And before she had been sworn in, AOC comes and visits them, you know and is, and, and is, is is promising to to introduce a, a green New Deal resolution. We need that on a massive scale, that dynamic that immediately after the election, bef- no victory parade, but you know immediate pressure. Although I do think that there, that if that if we are rid of Trump, there has to be a, a cathartic moment. I think people need that and deserve it. It just for, just for just for our health.
0: Yeah, Naomi, you brought up a lot of important points there, and I I want to get into social movement lessons from the the Obama administration. But first, uh, what do you what do you make of of Biden's campaign being sort of this this empty vehicle for a vast multitude of anti-Trump sentiment? What what does the way that Biden is running and the way his campaign is operating? What does that suggest about what sort of figures and forces might grab the reins within his administration?
2: Yeah, I think that's a good question. Um, very, very hard to tell. I hope that he assembles a cabinet that surprises us. i'm I'm not very confident that he will. I do think that he is signaling more to progressives um, than we've seen in the past. I think he understands that he has some dependency on the kind of mobilization that has happened uh, against Trump uh, from the left. I, I'm a little bit, you know, maybe averse now to the pushing from the left slogan, just in the sense that I think maybe what's happening is, is even better than that. I mean, I think there is pushing from the left happening, but I think we're also seeing people paying attention to politics at more and more different scales. And I think, you know, Naomi used the term strategic politics. I do think we're seeing uh, more interest in entering into how to think strategically about politics in different in different sites, at different in different places, from the, you know, in many ways, the way that the, the right built itself in the 80s and 90s, um, from the local scale on up. Seeing people wrapping around the block multiple times in my neighborhood in, in downtown Manhattan to vote for Biden. Um you know, was was stunning to me, and I, I I have to say, it really did lift my spirits. Um, not because I believe so much in in Biden or or even in presidential politics as the kind of sine qua non of what we must achieve, but but that I do think to go back to something I said earlier, there's a kind of level of political realism in this moment. The people have a sense that we are at, at, at real risk right now, and and the thing about Biden and Biden coming into office, if we, if we think that is going to happen, and we should probably also talk about the unspeakable alternative at some point, is that he's going to be pushed by circumstances. You know, he's going to be pushed whether he likes it or not. There is a hegemony deficit in this country. There is there is not. He's not coming in, as Naomi said, with Obama's charisma or even Clinton's charisma or even the kind of charisma Hillary would have carried into office as the first woman president. He comes in as the representative of what everybody sees as a kind of a kind of sclerotic, dying order in many ways. And in that way, he may not be that different from from Trump. Um, I think that we are. We are at the end of a certain arc of our of our political history, and we're all trying to figure out how to break through to what's next—something um, that is more adequate to the, the the problems that we face and that we need to be able to address. And even Biden himself seems to have framed himself that way as a kind of holding pattern, you know? Yeah, and and so so I think. It's true, many things can emerge in, in this moment. And I don't think that people are going to stop and say, I mean, I do think we should stop and say, oh, yes, we we can take a, take a moment and think we have some relief from this long nightmare of the last four years. But, but clearly, the, all the nightmares that we're living are going to continue in the most substantive sense, whether it's the pandemic or the economic crisis or geopolitical tensions or right-wing violence or police abuse or, or any, any number of the problems that have kind of roiled our country for the last 20 years. So I think that's where we are. Biden is going to be pushed, and people are paying attention in ways that I think is the only thing really we can, we can attach ourselves to as, a, as, the, as, a, as people who want to, to work for constructive change.
1: And I mean, what, one other piece of this, I mean, coming back to that sunrise moment, right, where you had the outside agitators, occupiers, um, troublemakers joined by the newly elected, you know, squad, and it wasn't just AOC. Rashida Tlaib, you know, came and and to, to a different sunrise demonstration and, and they were all there. And so I am really interested in what an enlarged squad and an emboldened squad is doing on the inside during during a Biden administration, um, because you know there's Jamal Bowman, there's Cory Bush, but there's also the original four members of the squad who have won re-election um, and have a really solid, empowering
0: and contrary to much speculation, decisively.
1: <laughs> oh yes, right. They've beat they've beaten back these amazing attacks, and so the, you know they're coming in powerful. And, and that's exciting as well to see how that plays out. And I hope to see more organization, uh, among them. And, and, and I think we, you know, we need more strategy, inside, outside strategy. Um, so, uh, that, you know, that's, that's, that's something else to, to keep in mind. Just on the sort of silver lining front, I don't know if anybody's interested in this, but I want to share a story that I tell myself, <laughs> uh, um, because obviously we're not in a situation that any of us wanted. We didn't want these options. I assume, I, Nikhil. I don't think you were in the Biden camp in the primaries. If I recall correctly, Dan. I know all about you. Um, but I, so I just want to share just the, on the placeholder uh, point a, a conversation I had in in Las Vegas uh, during the caucuses. I was it was in one of the caucuses at a at a big big high school in Las Vegas, and. I was, you know, at that point acting as a surrogate for Bernie. And I had a conversation with uh, an older African-American man who was the captain of the Biden team uh, in, in that in that caucus, which lost. But Bernie won that caucus as he won almost all of the Las Vegas caucuses. But he came up to me and he said, look, I agree with Bernie on everything. <laughs> um, and, but we're so tired. And... We just need a transition. And I don't think this country is ready for Bernie. You know, And this is something we heard again and again on, on, on the campaign trail. People who supported Bernie's policies, but projected onto America a belief that a democratic socialist would never win the presidency and that it was simply too high risk. Now, of course, we countered that. It, we in the Bernie camp countered that. And and made the argument that we could face the onslaught, um, that we had something to offer that the centrists didn't have to offer, that it was something worth fighting for, that Bernie was the perfect candidate to run against Trump, and you know we marshaled all those facts. But anybody who who claimed that Bernie was not risky was living a fantasy, you know, I'm like. Like I'm a third generation red diaper baby. My you know <laughs> my grandfather was blacklisted, my parents left the United States because my father was a war resistor. My, they could never have imagined Bernie Sanders winning. They had to leave the United States because there was no place for them. So the idea that that we were so sure that we could win, that, that wasn't true. What we believed was that the risk was worth taking. We had a risk reward Ratio, right? Where we believed Biden was risky because of all the things that we're seeing now, because of because of the 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 swamp, because of all the years in politics, because of the experience with Hillary. We believed he was risky. We we were afraid of a 2016 redux, but Bernie was also risky. We believed that there was more reward with the Bernie risk than there was with the Biden risk. And, 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 you know, what I argued was that there were no low risk candidates. Everybody was a risk. And so we had to make a calculation based on risk reward. But the point is, if Bernie had won the primary and lost to Trump, it would have set the left back 50 years or more and we don't know that we would have run. We don't know that the guy who I met in Las Vegas wasn't right. He may ha- he may have known the American people better than we do. My parents may know the American people better than I do. So you know, I think that we that that the left is in a in a powerful position right th- right now. Um and we could have been wiped out by this. So, yeah, we have to push like hell, but I don't know. I mean, does that seem like a a, 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 what? How does that strike you? I'm just curious.
0: I was thinking about the same thing this this morning while washing dishes. Like literally, I remembered very clearly, but I was thinking of it in a in both the more optimistic way that you're phrasing it like, oh, God, I would have been just so terrified as a leftist about the prospect of Bernie losing to Trump and what that would mean.
1: Not that the left, but the world.
0: The left and the whole (laughs) world, but to put it back to you more pessimistically, because I heard this on doors in New Hampshire and Massachusetts, all these people agreed with Bernie's ideas. I wasn't debating the ideas with people. I was debating electability constantly. How do we, though, confront this common sense idea, assuming that it continues to exist and that it's not, you know, a uniquely 2020 phenomenon, which I don't think it is, among so many of our would-be allies, by whom I mean Everyday liberal voters, the base of the Democratic Party, this common sense idea that that fighting for any sort of radically better or even merely livable future is just not possible. This this notion pushed by Republicans that maybe has more truth than we'd like to believe, but I think is is still sort of a myth that the United States electorate is a center right one. What do Maybe as you're framing it, Naomi, we dodged a potential bullet, and that's a silver lining. It doesn't mean we did the wrong thing by supporting Bernie. But either way, I don't think we dodged a <laughs> bullet.
1: Look, I still, I still wish Bernie had won. I still believe he could have beat Trump. But I, I, I think we have to be honest that none of us knew for sure. We did not know, and we have to acknowledge that Biden's strategy of don't rock the boat, play the middle, you know, don't take risks at this point. This. This podcast may sound very different a week from now, but at this point, it does seem to have worked. So I guess I'm just saying maybe maybe that guy in Las Vegas was right.
0: No, I think I think that's fair. And then I'll let me kick it to you, Nikhil. But but it raises two questions: like one, whether it's right or not. What does what does that being the campaign strategy mean for what his governance might look like? And then two, the left is still stuck with this with this problem of of, of the voters we know we need, which are ordinary Democratic Party voters, having kind of a deep pessimism about the possibilities of transformative change, even though they believe in it.
2: Yeah, I mean, I I think I agreed with everything that Naomi said up to the point where she said the left is powerful. I think the, the, the left is, I don't think the left is powerful. I think I think it's, it's a symptom that we're, we're so much, it's so much easier for us to imagine fascism in the United States than socialism. And that in fact, we think that we shouldn't raise the specter of socialism because it might hasten the rise of fascism. I, I think that we have, to, we have to maybe be able to really, really change our, our orientation um, if we're going to have a powerful left uh, and build a powerful left. Um, and I'm not quite sure how we do that. I think it's, it's like I said before, I think sometimes we we just find ourselves as, as adjuncts of the institutional democratic party, which is, it turns out much smarter and much more capable than maybe we gave them credit for being. I mean, Hillary Clinton, after all, won 63 million votes the the pelosi strategy suburban strategy in 2018 was very successful taking back congress there was there that the, they could be vindicated by a biden landslide which also takes back the senate of course this is all going to remain to be seen and i don't think any of it suggests that they are themselves the masters of american politics at this moment or the political forces that are ruling the country that's not what i'm trying to suggest but they are much more powerful than the forces on the left. Um, and the forces on the left, I think, generally end up in a position where uh, we have to kind of attach ourselves in some way or another to uh, the sources of, of kind of media, of funding, of um, of influence, of, of kind of channels of opportunity, that with With some exceptions, where there have been inroads like in the in the congressional campaigns that were mentioned before, the squad and Jamal Bowman and Cory Bush and others, you know those are those are truly I think hopeful signs. I mean, knocking off Elliot Engel in New York was just a great victory, and I think there's a reason why Schumer and Clinton and all of them were lining up behind Engel because they understand how much these kinds of positions in Congress matter for keeping the orientation that they want. So that's the inside change, and the inside change is, is happening to some degree. Uh, there's clearly a lot of forces on the outside now, and I think we've been talking about that, and it, and it is hopeful. But to become powerful, I think we, we, we need to be able to not only uh, find ways to institutionalize ourselves, and, and begin to impact and reshape the dispositions of institutions, whether it's rebuilding the labor movement, as we've been talking about since the 1990s, quite unsuccessfully, you know, or kind of building more durable social movements that aren't quite as um, maybe beholden to certain kinds of um, corporate and donor interests. And then finally, I think expanding what we think of as the base of the left. And, you know, this was the really the great promise of Bernie, and the electoral gambit, which was to basically say there is a party of non-voters out there. There is a party um, of voters who are not being served by the Republican Party, whether it's working class white and rural voters who maybe have been swayed to vote for the Republican Party, but that can actually be turned um, to recognize in a program that is really oriented towards their their economic self-interest, and their basic needs that can, that can sort of change their orientation. Um, I don't know about these the, whether these theories of, 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 of change, of political change that have been put out there, both the kind of idea that we can galvanize the party of non-voters and we can turn some of the working class voters that have voted uh, for the right in recent, uh, recent years, I don't know if those theories of change are actually true, uh, but I think those are the theories of change we need to be able to continue to advance and work on. Because at some point, that is the constituency for a left politics. It's really the constituency that has been left out of the political discussion. you know. And I read an article in the New York Times the other day, which was just another one of these warning signs you know, of the current election, where it was Low income voters who are basically saying, well, we're going to we're going to sit this one out, too, because we don't really see anything in this for us. Now, Biden has come out saying he's going to support a $15 an hour minimum wage, you know, but I haven't seen that like really hammered as a kind of central message of his campaign. Um, of course, minimum wages are also set in many ways um, in, in, in kind of state and local contexts. So how that would actually work. As a national project is a little bit unclear. But but I think it's true to go back to something, something Dan said earlier. People don't see a, a, a kind of opportunity in the political process that is really going to help them in their basic life circumstances. And you know, until they do, I think we're always going to be having the same conversation of, you know, how do we decide between the lesser of two evils,
0: Naomi.
1: Yeah, I mean, and I guess I would clarify that when I say that the left is powerful, I mean, I mean it's more powerful than it's been in my lifetime, which doesn't mean it's nearly powerful enough because it's been incredibly weak in my lifetime. But you know, but but if we if we if we bring together the depths of the demands coming from social movements, so not just saying there are. Big social movements, but there are social movements that are demanding completely different kinds of societies and economies, and are not afraid of building across silos and building a whole and and embracing a a, a holistic vision of a of a different kind of world. That's a shift. As you know, the squad is a shift, but also the polling shows us a shift that there is tremendous support for Medicare for all. There is incredible support for a green new deal among uh, uh, you know among Democrats and and there is deep demand for the kind of material supports during the pandemic that other countries are providing. But the Democratic Party has failed people and and so, the best case scenario is that is that that biden really does represent this sort of last gasp of that dying politics and that there really is a generational shift underway but i think we have to be very careful about overemphasizing electoral politics as well that that's just one piece of this and this is where i i i i think there is a exciting generational shift going on within social movements, and including you know, young people studying history and and really understanding how New Deal victories were won. That it that, that 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 this was a not a moment where a government handed down these victories from on high, but that this was a high point of labor movement organizing with the capacity to shut down entire cities, and that that's you know to the extent that 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 the New Deal delivered and it didn't deliver for everybody as we all know it was because of that pressure from below so yeah i mean we have our work cut out for us there's no doubt
2: i'm aziz rana and you're listening to the dig a great place for analysis about where we are how we got here and what can be done it's my favorite podcast and you can support it at patreon.com
0: this episode of the dig is brought to you by our listeners who support us at patreon.com and by verso books which has loads of great left-wing titles Perfect for dig listeners like you. Verso just launched a new subscription service for readers to get ebooks and discounts every month. When you become a member of the Verso Book Club, you receive all of Verso's new ebooks every month, as well as one or more new books in the mail, plus 50% off all Verso books as long as you're a subscriber. To celebrate Verso's 50th anniversary, all member tiers are now at a discount of 50%. Choose between three membership tiers. The Verso Reader tier is a digital subscription for every new Verso ebook each month. Verso Subscriber for one book sent to you in the mail every month and all Verso ebooks. And Verso Comrade for two to three books sent to you by mail every month, plus all Verso ebooks. To celebrate Verso's 50th anniversary, each option is 50% off for your first three months. At this momentous time for global politics, Verso will bring you radical voices that challenge capitalism, racism, and patriarchy, debate the future of the planet, and work towards real political change. Sign up for the Verso Book Club at versobooks.com bookclub book club. That's versobooks.com Slash book club. I want to stipulate that Biden's strategy is correct for the sake of argument to get into what that then means, his centrist campaign, what that then means for how he will govern. Because instead of turning out non voters, which is what Bernie hoped but failed to do, and I think part of the lesson there is you just can't do it in the cycle of one. Primary race, it's really as that Times article you're you're referencing, Nikhil, I think showed really powerfully. People have a deeply reasoned alienation from electoral politics, and that's hard to a hard thing to change. Um, but but in so instead of of turning out non-voters, the Biden campaign is winning over affluent suburbanite centrists. And there was another New York Times article about this about rich and well-to-do donors moving from supporting Republicans. To funding Democrats. And we've kind of seen this movie before where the Democratic Party's turn towards suburban liberals over the past half century. And the historian Lily Geismer, who I interviewed on the show a while back, writes about this, that played a big role in moving the party toward neoliberalism. So what sort of political impact do you think that the wealthy, suburbanite, centrist turn toward Democrats under Trump might have? Because there's strategically, obviously, some very good Things about it in terms of just looking at ne- at November third, like Senate seats that might be won as a result. But how might the left approach the problem of a Democratic base that, because of Trump, becomes more hostile to working class interests and the left?
2: You know, I, I think I don't like this this phrase that Thomas Piketty uses, the Brahmin left. You know, to kind of just de- de- describe the, um, <laughs> describe the sort of change in in you know Euro American politics as the as the the more affluent um, kind of professional classes and uh, um, people who work for for wages within managerial positions, you know, mostly have kind of gravitated to to more uh, left left leaning or left of center parties, and the and the right, you know, ends up being the party of of kind of small business and kind of working class but a kind of a working class that's oriented towards maybe a, an exclusionary politics, whether it's around migration or around race or, or other kinds of questions. And I think there are some... Pa- plus
0: some lump in billionaires.
2: Yeah, plus lump in billionaires. And then there's the, also the question of the, the the kind of the the urban working class, you know, which is sometimes maybe, maybe divided between a, a class that's drawn into maybe democratic coalitions and a class that is pretty has been pretty dramatically criminalized over the last 30 years so it's a it's a it's a, like a complex and kind of fragmented picture you know and I think what I was trying to allude to earlier and I mean I think this is really really a, one of the, the big questions for for the left is how you how you revive something called class politics you know we've been having this debate on and off for for 30 years and it's it's obviously often posed in a very unconstructive way when we imagine class as this kind of flat abstraction that doesn't account for the very, very different kinds of experiences and histories and gender and gendered race and ethnic backgrounds and occupation and regional and urban, rural location, all these different things, right? You can't just sort of say, well, class is going to cut through all of that. But, but we do have something of, of, of a kind of a plutocratic politics on both sides that organizes itself differently. Right. So a a Republican Party that appeals to kind of regional despotism and small business and, you know, a kind of a kind of a kind of a working class base underneath that, that maybe is employed in these by by some of the kind of elites or, or sees those elites in the guise of employers. And then a Democratic Party that is really cobbled together much more through a kind of appeal to kind of professional suburban middle class interests in alliance with a kind of urban working class and urban being the code for, you know, kind of the more multiracial side of the coalition, right? So the Democratic Party wins 80 to 90% of the African-American vote, which is a vastly working class population. And I think this time, you know, where, where Latinos go is going to be a big question. Um, I mean, I was reading an article recently that one of the really strange things about the current election is is that both coalitions are becoming more multiracial, right? That, that more, it, it may be the case that Trump gets more working class voters of color voting for him in this election, even as Biden pulls in more white voters, right that were maybe once trump voters so it's it's there's something happening to our politics that is really interesting and and it's it's unclear kind of what the trajectories are and I think what the Democratic party does will also have something to do with what the Republican party does you know if the Republican party really moves in a more um, in a more genuinely populist direction and I'm not Anticipating that, I think they're actually going to continue down this this ultimately self defeating road of um, trying to see how long they can ride out some degree of power through counter majoritarian institutions and practices, whether it's voter suppression or 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 using the courts or kind of hoping that you know that the trick of the electoral college will work in their favor. But they're they're really they're really running, I think, on borrowed time, and I think that that there's going to be some people in that party that are going to recognize this. I mean, they too are are going to undergo some kind of revision out of this moment, you know, and that revision could, could take some very, very scary, scary paths, obviously, but I think it's going to condition what the Democrats do as well. And I think the thing that I'm scared of when it comes to the Democratic Party and this kind of suburban sunbelt strategy, if you will, you know, is that. They grow to a kind of uh, complacency, you know, and really see the kind of um, the broader constituencies in the country that are kind of out of favor, out of power, out of economic security, you know, as kind of supplicants rather than as real real participants, you know, that that kind of part. As Nancy Pelosi
1: said, we feed them.
2: Yes, exactly. Exactly. That was an incredible moment. You know, horrible. horrible moment. And that party is going to lose popularity like in a, in a heartbeat without Trump to run against, you know?
1: Yeah, and especially, and, and look, we don't know how long the COVID period is going to be. And I think that Trump's messaging of like, the choice is between lockdown and nobody having any, you know, work or money, right? Or, you know, just like, open it all up and let people die, I don't think the Democrats have done nearly a good enough job of saying, actually, there's a third choice. There are there are countries out there where they're not under lockdown, but they have, you know, effective controls and they have public health care and they have, you know, contact tracing and everybody wears masks. And guess what? The schools are open and the economy is kind of functional and, um, you know, there isn't mass unemployment. That story has not been told. And Trump has effectively scared the hell out of people, working class people, by saying Joe Biden's gonna shut down the economy and that's all they have to offer you. And that is it that is tragic. That did not have to happen. And and yeah, they're not very good at this messaging at all.
2: I think that's a really good point, you know. And I think I think there really is a question of whether the Democratic Party can govern effectively. How how much better would they have done with this? Pandemic. I mean, clearly they would have done better than Trump, and you know Obama's whole whole shtick, I think, was um, people want minimally competent government. You know that that was really not adequate to the crisis moment he was elected to address. But I think that was that was the idea, and I think Biden carries that with him. But how how minimally competent can they be? As as Naomi pointed out earlier, you know when you've cut hospital capacities to the bone. You know, when people are living on the edge of, of, of like not being able to pay their rent, you know, when, when we're, we're kind of in a situation where our infrastructure is crumbling around us. I mean, it's, it's, it's New York City, New York State where I live and we're governed by Democrats. And de Blasio came in as a very, very progressive mayor, you know, in many ways on the criminal justice reform tack. You remember he-
0: On Stop and Frisk- and putting his own son in a commercial.
2: Yeah, he 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 ran on that all the way, and you know De Blasio's done a few good things, like getting Universal Pre K. I would say maybe his best thing, but this city is not functioning well. Um, it is not functioning well at all, and there's not there's not real leadership through this this pandemic. I think New Yorkers are doing a good job of managing it. But the city is really not doing well. Um, you know, and I, I have friends of mine who are really on the left and they're like, I wish Bloomberg was still mayor, which is horrifying when you think about it, because like, you know, that's what that's what Bloomberg Bloomberg was the kind of, you know, the authoritarian technocrat, you know, not Trump by any means, uh, but, but you know, not even remotely on the left. So I think I think we have a we have a ch- challenging a challenging moment um, ahead of us and and it's not clear yet because of Biden being this placeholder this kind of cipher somebody who's kind of run from his basement and all that what <laughs> he's really going to what he's really going to do and i i am kind of surprised that there isn't a more robust argument for how we're going to address coronavirus come jan you know come january <laughs> because it's going to be raging still <laughs> you know
1: yeah and because it is it is impossible to manage this without a frontal attack on the logic of austerity. You, If you want to open your schools, you need to hire thousands and thousands of teachers and teaching assistants. You need to invest in outdoor education. You need to rethink education. And that's why it's been possible for Betsy DeVos et al to come in and say, look, we just want to give you choices. We want to support your parent pods and all your privatized solutions and vouchers. Because the Democratic response has not acknowledged the state of profound decay and disrepair that the entire public sector is in. I mean, I agree with everything that Nikhil said. And I mean, one of the things that worries me about the kind of postmortems of the Bernie campaign is that because the turnout of non-voters was not what we hoped it would be, that we take this lesson. or some people take the lesson that it's impossible right? Because in fact, what it was, was inconsistent and patchy. But you, know, you mentioned the Latino vote and the fact that, that Biden is very weak in that area. Bernie was very strong. And that was because of incredible organizing. I mean, coming back to Nevada, I mean, watching like the Unidos con Bernie organizers on the ground was awe-inspiring, and they did turn people out. Um, and so what that showed is that That same commitment and that same discipline was not applied across the board, it was not applied to African American voters nearly enough. Um, And key advisors like Barbara Ransby and Barbara Smith were not listened to and we all know these stories, but we can't take the lesson that it's impossible. Because in fact, we have some really great examples that it is possible. The other thing I just would want to say is that we have to make a distinction between the kind of David Frum hashtag resistance who essentially want to turn the Democratic Party into Bush's Republican Party and suburban voters who may genuinely be in the midst of some kind of political conversion. And, and, you know, obviously, this is not true of everyone. And I hate all the, you know, Panera voter classifications, but. I do think coming back to what we talked about, about how COVID has changed people, it has. Trump has changed people. And if we're serious about winning, we have to take seriously the possibility of transformation, that people do have their worldviews challenged by reality sometimes and build on that and not just sort of diss the Panera women wholesale as just kind of dragging the Democratic Party to the center.
0: As much as I make fun of it, I do want to win over those people who live in houses with that sign that says, in this house we believe, in In front of it. But it is also notable and instructive that those signs don't include on the long list of, like, you know, uh, immigrants are, are welcome, science is real, Black Lives Matter. It does not include a line that says something like, there is power in a union.
2: Or, and it doesn't include a, a, a sign that says, allow my local income taxes to be distributed throughout the state to make sure the public education is equal, you know,
0: <laughs> or and, please build low income housing in my neighborhood. Exactly.
2: And I think that's, <laughs> that's, that's sort of where we, we have the, 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 sort of law, long, the standing dilemmas of the kind of neoliberal era, which was, you know, that, 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 that there was, a, there were, there were popular, kind of right wing movements that made neoliberalism possible if you go back to like the the tax revolts of the you know of the of, of 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 the late 1970s
0: which is back on the ballot in California this year interestingly enough
2: exactly interestingly enough you know so so the 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 the, the desire to basically say that one of the ways we will secure ourselves is by f- finding ways to keep keep the, the wealth within our own communities and and not recognize this sort of deep, profound interdependency and mutual vulnerability that is now impacting us to kind of retreat again from that. So I, I do think Naomi's right, though, that there, there is an awakening going on. I think uh, it, it, it will need to be deepened um, and it will, be, it will need to be um, enabled further by some real institutional reform You know, we haven't really talked about that. You know, that's that's sort of one of the questions that's also going to be on the table in a Biden administration. I mean, everyone's talking about the question of court packing. There's been a long set of struggles around gerrymandering. There's there's questions about what it will mean to continue to make it easier for people to vote. So I think it's been really interesting this election cycle to watch so many people vote early and to basically seize it in some ways themselves and to say, we're, we're just not going to not have our vote not counted. We're just going to get out there and make sure and we're going to be willing to stand in line for a really long time to do this. But but I think we, we have to be able to make it easier for people to vote. We have to be able to... Um, in some ways delegitimate the supreme court or transform the the terms under which it operates so that it understand so that th- those nine people understand that they are on notice
0: which is not what just happened uh support for amy coney barrett's nomination skyrocketed during the confirmation hearings
2: yeah i mean it's, it's so we <laughs> you know it's 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 a it's it's a tall it's a tall order and we haven't even gotten to the the kind of um the larger kind of global, geopolitical, environmental—you know—the questions that are, I think, very much at the heart of what Naomi's written about over the last, you know, two or th- two or three decades, really. Um, and these are going to be enormous challenges as well.
1: For sure. I mean, we're talking about getting to ground where we can even begin to talk about it, right? I mean, and this is this is this is why. I'm so frustrated. And I don't know how, how big a, a you know, electoral block it represents. But of course, Twitter distorts reality. And I see a, quite a few people in my feed, talking about how, you know, they're tired of voting lesser of too evil, and they've been doing it forever. And, you know, it's this is this is the election, um, where they're going to take their stand. And, and, Annie Leonard, who's the executive director of, of Greenpeace, talks about how, you know, I'd rather I, I, I'd rather push a moderate than fight a fascist. Um, and I it, the, the choice seems pretty clear to me if it needs to be said. Um, you know, we used to say this, you know, I, I Dan, you've written about being part of the Nader campaign in 2000. I supported Nader in 2000 as well. 2020 is not 2000. And thanks to in large part to the to the pathetic corporate pandering of the Democrats in power, the House is on fire. It's on political fire. It's on social fire. And it's on ecological fire. And there is someone with a water gun and there is someone with a can of gasoline. And it's pretty clear that this is not the moment to score political points. It's the moment to tackle the guy with the can of gasoline. (laughs) And then we figure out how do we turn that water gun into a fire hose? I mean, what else are we going to do?
0: One thing that I think is a bit of a problem is the way that these debates take place on Twitter amongst, you know, personalities whose the, the weight of their opinion corresponds to the number of their followers. And, you know, I'm not above playing that game. I'm not pretending I am. But we have this situation where we don't have many movement leaders who lead organizations that represent people who have anywhere near the platforms of, you know, social media or or media stars. And, and in part, that's because we don't have very many movement organizations that actually represent tons of people. So it's a problem that I think is f- with a lot of causes.
2: No, I mean, I, I agree with that. And I also agree with what Naomi said previously. I mean, it's not even a question for me that voting for Biden is the, the the right choice but i think that, that 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 my my sense is that people is is that people see that um i i think there was a um you know in 2016 there was a certain you know there was a lot of uh, a lot of hostility to hillary clinton i think there was a lot of that, that was kind of that was baked in both because of her some of her very specific characteristics her her associations with past administrations, her gender, obviously. And I think there was a, there was a, a a kind of a, a bit of a ludic sense for some people that like, I can roll the dice with Trump, you know, and, you know, and maybe this will, this will shake things up in some way, or maybe he will be a surprise or maybe he will, you know, um, and I and of course, that was that was to many of us. It was it was obvious what the right choice was in 2016 as well. And I voted for Hillary Clinton, as did many, many people, you know, with with a lot of disdain um, and 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 without any any shred of joy. But uh, but it was the right choice then. Right. and. This this lesser lesser of two evils argument, you know, is is really a somewhat of a meaningless, I think, uh, posture because uh, it doesn't really accomplish anything. It's it's a it's an it's an individualistic politics. It's not based upon any kind of kind of wider theory of change. Uh, Clearly, this is the moment, and I think this is the moment we we have an election. We hopefully get Trump out of office we have a sense that we have a a new table set and then we get back to the work that is really important you know that that many people have been doing for many many years in many many different locations and i think we have to understand of course the ways we haven't been as effective as we need to be you know but but this also goes back to kind of not over over inflating the importance of a presidential election. I mean, it, feel, it feels like this election has been going on for four years. It feels like we're in like a nonstop presidential election and that that's all we pay attention to at, at some level in the quote unquote discourse, you know, and it will be, it will be nice, I think, hopefully to be able to talk about some other kinds of things and to focus our attention in ways that maybe we can start to gain some, some, some traction
0: Yeah, I want to maybe argue not the other side of it, but another side of it, which is that I also think a lot of the recurrent every four years liberals and also people on the left sort of like hectoring people into voting for the Democratic candidate is a politics that doesn't have very much to do with getting people to vote for the Democratic candidate because the conditions that will cause Biden to win or lose and cause X number of people to vote for him or to vote for a third party don't have anything to do with what various people on Twitter or even podcasts might say, at least at that scale. I think it has to do with how much on the one hand, how much people hate Trump and want to get him out. The answer is a lot of people very passionately. The other hand, how excited people are about Biden. Not very much, especially since he constantly shits on the left. But overall, I think it's pretty clear that this time that the hatred of Trump far outweighs the distaste for Biden, and that all of the kind of like liberal hectoring, the continuing to you know blame Jill Stein for 2016, or even going back to Nader 2000, to, to blaming left defection to third party voters for the success of of right wing presidents who didn't even win the popular vote, is more of something that that liberals do on Twitter to make themselves to provide an explanation that doesn't involve them interrogating their own complicity with the the state of affairs we're, we're living under?
1: Well, there's absolutely that. There's absolutely that. But I, I still think that there is a significant, you know, number of voices out there with pretty large followings who, who seem to be playing a role that is just about demoralizing people. And I find that bizarre because, you know, I mentioned, you know, I've been involved in electoral battles where there was, you know, a real third-party option that wasn't going to win, but you know, had a political program that people were excited about. Uh, the Green Party is not playing that role in this election cycle, and, and and so the point of the argument is just to score political points. Yeah,
0: no, I agree entirely. It's with that. just yeah, it-
1: and, and and that seems to me particularly strange because if the point is just to protest the system, then protest. <laughs> Right. Then there are ways to protest. And we've been talking about how important protest is going to be. But just sit, just sitting out an election is just sitting out an election. That's not a protest.
0: Yeah, I think I think what bugs me more about the part of what you're describing, Naomi, that bugs me the the, the most is less around vote for Biden or not, and more about the deep pessimism that we sometimes hear about the left's ability to make to, to make change under a Biden administration. And that, I believe, is, is truly damaging because the, the universe of, of voters is much mar- larger, like just orders of magnitude larger than the leftists that, having, that are having this discussion. Whereas the number of, the, the universe of people who are kind of like left cadre who are going to be deciding how to take action under a Biden administration is a much smaller universe of voters who do need not only optimism as some sort of you know, drug, but actually like a realistic analysis that looks back at the Obama administration, and understands how, as you mentioned earlier, how Occupy, the immigrant uh, rights anti-deportation struggle, Black Lives Matter, Standing Rock, and then finally the Bernie 2016 campaign, how the left, um, in more and less successful ways, engaged with an establishment neoliberal democratic president. Those are important lessons that we need to, to learn so that we can move forward and be as effective as we can.
2: I think we'll know we've we've sort of crossed some threshold when we're no longer in a situation where one of the main characteristics of the left is the perennial disappointment with the left, you know. <laughs> I, I think I think there's there's a way in which which that becomes the kind of the kind of crosstalk that happens, you know, leading some people to declare themselves post left or you know, or, or the true left or, you know, the faux left or, you know, I mean I mean I guess I've always been a little bit of a of a popular fronter kind of in my orientation and the question before us has always seemed to me how do we assemble the largest possible constituency that we can imagine for our politics? And how do we actually engage in ways that bring together the challenges of of, of severe and worsening economic inequality and deprivation with the challenges of various forms of domination that we should all rightly on uh, from every moral and ethical standpoint, oppose and reject, whether it's gender domination or racial domination um, or the or the or the legacies of indigenous dispossession or the problems associated with migrant and refugee struggles, you know, And but the thing is, is that happens, of course, is, is that as, as we start to list these things and as we start to talk about what the what the wider range of left commitments are, we start to then fray and have disagreements, you know, and I don't know if you read uh, Jedediah Purdy's piece in Dissent yesterday uh, that was published online, um, I think it's going to be in the next issue where he's kind of talking about this and you know one of the things he's saying is is that the you know the, the the left has to work through the nation state. It's been one of the you know one of I mean th- this is obviously a truism. We we work were, we're talking about national politics for the last hour and a half. Uh, but but what he what he says I think a line in in the in the piece is you know uh, a recognition that you need to put the welfare of your fellow nationals first in your politics. You know well. I mean, this becomes then a real, a real vexing question for us, because obviously this has been, you know, the, he's putting it in a really anodyne way, in a kind of nice way, but putting your fellow nationals first is really, in some ways, one of the, the sharpest, kind of most polarizing questions of our politics before us, because what constitutes a fellow national is really becomes the question, who, isn't, who is a legitimate member of the polity? Um, do, do we do we do we make the case that undocumented workers should have all the rights that that ordinary Americans have? I mean, I think we should be making that case. Then, are we putting our fellow nationals first? You know, how how do we think about that question? These are these are the kinds of questions that I think have have produced not only divisions, but there have also been questions that we haven't always necessarily wanted to tackle um, head on. But I think we we need to or we're going to just continue to find ourselves kind of fragmenting and splintering in the ways that the wel- the, the left really has over the last 20 or 30 years and 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 that, that again was the the great promise of Bernie. I don't think he he ultimately, you know, he didn't he didn't master the landscape of polarization. He he comes from a pre a, an older an older generation, you know, that that understood solidarity as a kind of deep deep commitment. You know, and I think we have to we have we have to we have to absorb that again and and, and kind of remember that. Uh, but then we have to figure out how we how we adapt that kind of sensibility to the kind of landscape we find ourselves in.
0: Naomi one thing I'm trying to think through is what to make of everything going on here in the US through what we're seeing right now in Chile, where the left just won this enormous victory in a referendum to elect a constituent assembly to toss out their Pinochet constitution and write a new one to replace it. And what's so powerful about that, among many things that are powerful about that, is that Chile's left has been waging this democratic struggle that was simultaneously about economic and political democracy because their neoliberal constitution has made it impossible for people to overthrow, because their neoliberal political constitution has made it impossible for people to overthrow neoliberal economic.
1: Which was by design. I mean, it was, it was very, very openly discussed by the Chicago boys um, that they were building what they called a technified democracy, which literally meant a, democ- a, a democracy that would be protected from well an economy that would be protected from democracy so all the economic levers would be locked away and that's what the constitution was designed to do so that they did it in preparation for the end of the dictatorship
0: yeah so with so with everything going on right now in the u.s the election supreme court pandemic black lives matter climate change massive inequality precarity all under a president who is the product as i was discussing last week with with Wendy Brown of such a deeply degraded democracy how do how can we learn from Chile and have a left that that fights for democracy in a way that's really broad and and all encompassing that that includes elections but but ties those electoral struggles to this broader struggle to fundamentally democratize this country both both economically and politically so that we're thinking about all these things kind of in a simultaneous an interconnected way. It seems like too much to hope for for the U.S. right now, but in, but Chile really does seem to demonstrate precisely how it's done.
1: Wow, that's a huge question, and I think it's 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 the question in so many ways because um, because the system I mean, in Chile, people know the system was rigged by Pinochet and the Chicago Boys in order to take the muscle out of democracy before it arrived. Uh, at the end of the very long dictatorship. And so they never had, had real democracy, but that's true of the United States too. Um, and, and so if we continue with the idea of the unveiling <laughs> coming from Puerto Rico, right, that, that this is part of what has been unveiled for a lot of people who, who hadn't seen it before. This is part of the unveiling, not, not, not just of COVID, but of Trump, right, of the, that more people understand the, the profoundly anti-democratic nature, all the ways in which it is rigged, all the ways in which the, there are checks on democracy, not checks on power, checks on democracy, um, whether it's the Supreme Court or the Electoral College. Um, and Nikhil knows way more about this than me. So, yeah,
2: that's the hope. Well, I would I, I think that's exactly right. And I would I would I would add to that that you know there's a reason why and I don't always agree with all of the, the sort of the long the sort of long arguments that are made about about the centrality of slavery or the centrality of settlement in the contemporary moment. I mean I, I think I basically agree with the broad impetus to see that we are still reckoning with contradictions that were lodged at the founding. You know, a constitution that was designed to protect property against democracy, a constitution that was designed to enshrine enslavement, a constitution that uh, led to an expansionary drive um, as the kind of mechanism uh, by which prosperity would be ensured through the attrition of the indigenous uh, kind of uh, inhabitants of the continent and then beyond this continent. Right? And so all of those projects that kind of defined the United States as a kind of race settler racist, property owning democracy are kind of uh, in question. And I think I think Naomi has said this in this conversation that people are much more attuned and kind of in a process of deep learning about this. But how we how we take all this on and kind of redesign our own, uh, our own project, our own collective politics in this moment is a, is a very, very tall order. And I think one of the really big challenges that we haven't, again, really talked about today is how it relates to the, the kind of wider world in this moment. Because I think the problem I think we're facing is, is that we're not going to grow our way out of this. There's not going to be a kind of a kind of sudden expansion that sort of allows us to once again defer the contradictions by kind of, again, sort of spreading around prosperity to Americans at the expense of someone somewhere else. You know, and I think that's ultimately, as as, as Greg Grandin argued in, in The End of the Myth, you know, his, his Pulitzer Prize winning book uh, of, of last year, that's kind of what Trump's border wall signified. And in some ways, Trump, for all his his mania, kind of recognized something, you know, about the uh, about the delusions of expansion. I don't think he really recognizes it. But, but the, the question of how we you know, cultivate our own garden, as it were, in, 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 in harmony with people in other parts of the world, in coexistence, you know, in constructive coexistence, is a huge challenge for this country. And I think one of the things that scares me the most about the coming period is kind of how some of this is going to play out in our foreign policy.
1: Yeah, absolutely. And I mean, this is like coming back to you know, what I was saying earlier about, about the kind of parochialism of the discourse around COVID. It's such a wasted opportunity because this is, by its very nature, it is so international. And, you know, that, that, that cover of the New York Times photograph scroll, right, that where you just see images of people around the world in masks and getting tests, you know, I find that interesting that they have stuck with that for over over now, you know, something like six months, because that's not how we talk about it, really. And the rest of the world is still largely invisible in the United States. And we have this because we are all facing a a virus together, but we are facing it in such different ways. It's actually an amazing opportunity to to build internationalism uh, on the left. And rebuild because we've lost a lot of ground. we've lost a lot of ground from the anti-corporate globalization and free trade era um, where we were building alliances and building common analysis and you know I'm not I don't want to over idealize that, but it was one of the things that happened under the Bush administration was, the sort of the outrageousness of Bush, who is now presented as this, you know, docile painter character, right? Um, but the, the outrages of the Bush years turned the U.S. left inward at a moment when it had started to kind of join the world in thinking about you know, international institutions like the World Trade Organization and the IMF and the World Bank and having more. And, and of course, opposition to the anti-war movement was international, But then things started going inward again. And so, yeah, I haven't read that Jedediah Purdy piece, but I would really reject this idea that this is the moment to just kind of look after our own country people, certainly from a a climate perspective. It's a big part of what landed us here was an unspoken sort of sense that climate change was something that was affecting other people in other countries far away and not us. And any kind of hierarchy of humanity is just going to Lead us, I think, to um, you know more barbarism.
0: Yeah, that's a really interesting and kind of depressing point because COVID really should. It, it, COVID has we as we've discussed has exposed our interdependence, but that exposure has really stopped at the border. Even though there's, it's so obvious that a pandemic, by its very nature. Crosses, political borders, and what an opportunity to start thinking beyond our borders and about the interdependence of the world's people for the sake of the future of the planet that we all live on.
2: Yeah, I just I don't want to th- completely throw Jet, Jedediah under the bus here because because I think he's he's raising a he's raising this as a as a as a crucial question, um, and I think the way he's raising it is really a, in the context of saying that the left has to do more than 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 bear witness and speak truth to power and imagine pushing those in power and has to think about how to actually capture and shape the dispositions of power you know and so how do we meaningfully do that is really the question he's sort of asking us to to center, and that's bringing him back to this question of what it means to think about national politics, if not nationalist politics. And I do think that is going to be something that we we wrestle with in the in the coming years. I do I do think that's that's a, a go going to be a feature of our of our of our political life, the kind of res, a resurgent sense of our nation first. And I don't think that Biden is going to you know really dislodge that either. You know, and I think that. Again, maybe this is a subject for a follow up conversation um, that would kind of take us out again um, into into the questions about um, what it means to rebuild international solidarity and institutions, because I think that Naomi's absolutely right about how much ground we lost there over the last 20 years. Um, but it's it's clearly of paramount importance that we do so. And, you know, and what to do about China, which is always going to be the question. Right. I mean.
0: And in the last presidential debate, they were basically debating who was going to be tougher on China and manage the civilizational, the inevitable civilizational conflict with it better.
2: I mean, Biden called Xi a thug. Yeah. I mean, this is this is not constructive. You know, This is not constructive way to talk about things. But but obviously there 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 are real questions about China that we would we would want to be able to talk about as part of how we understand politics on the left right now. Um, but I, I think we, we're we still quite a bit far from that in some ways, or we've strayed far from that. I'm glad that you brought Chile into the conversation because it's a truly inspiring example. Um, and, it, and, it, and it does light a kind of path forward.
1: And and there is, I mean, the, the the historical significance of it and the resonance of it, I think is so important. Because this was the original laboratory um, for neoliberalism, introduced with blood and fire. Yeah, you know, there's a slogan on the in the in the in the social movements in Chile that, that um, says something like, "We are children of neoliberalism, but we will be the parents and grandparents of a of another system, of a new world." And you know that remains to be seen. But I think that that's the kind of ambition that we have to channel, that we, and, you know, there is you know, this is a, this is our pre-election show. So, you know, I have to say that there is no, there's no guarantee or, or even maybe likelihood that we will do the kinds of ambitious systemic transformations that we've talked about in this conversation under, or beginning under a Biden administration. I don't think any of us are optimistic enough to claim that, to claim that it is likely, But I think one thing I can say with certainty is that under a second Trump term, there is a certainty that we will hurtle towards authoritarianism, which is already happening. And so, you know, we have to fight for where we have a chance.
0: Well, Naomi Klein and Nikhil Paul Singh, thank you both very much.
1: Thank you. It's such a pleasure to talk with both of you.
2: Likewise. Really very great to talk to you both. And let's hope that we, we, what, where we focused ends up being borne out so that we can continue the conversation. Nikhil Paul
0: Singh is professor of social and cultural analysis and history at NYU and the author of Race in America's Long War. Naomi Klein is a professor in media, culture, and feminist studies at Rutgers University and the author of On Fire, The Burning Case for a Green New Deal. Thank you for listening to The Dig, a podcast from Jacobin Magazine. As Marx once said, after noting that the worst thing that can befall a leader of an extreme party is to be compelled to take over a government in an epoch when the movement is not yet ripe for the domination of the class which he represents, and for the realization of the measures which that domination would imply. While other podcasts have only interpreted the world in various ways, our point is to change it. We are posting new episodes every week. The Dig was produced by Alex Lewis. Music by Jeffrey Brodsky. Our communications coordinators are Julia Rock and Zachary Nin. Our senior advisor is Thea Riofrancos. Check out our vast archives at thedigradio.com. Follow us on Twitter at The Dig Radio. Same on Facebook. Please also find us wherever you get podcasts and subscribe to this podcast. If it is on iTunes or wherever, please also rate and review us. Those reviews ostensibly help introduce us to new listeners, but the real key thing is you telling your friends about the show. Please make propaganda for us, and do find us on Patreon and make a monthly contribution to keep this operation going strong. Even a few bucks a month is huge.